0: The following is intended for bizarre audiences only. Welcome to the Midnight Library.
1: I'm placing an order with our stone mason, madame. Would you like anything?
0: No. But I love new tombstones. What have you decided to order?
1: A megaphone and a gargoyle plugging his ears for Mrs. Jones. I'm happy to have silenced her. And an empty fruit basket on fire for Mr. Finn.
0: So you ate Mrs. Jones because she was noisy during the readings. And Mr. Finn because he was shallow and empty-headed?
1: I ate Mr. Finn because I was ravenous, only to discover he was full of fruit. Blech. He was like one of those tricky chocolates with toothpaste inside.
0: Ugh oh, some of our guests can be so inconsiderate. You know they won't even be quiet when you skin them.
1: Blech. 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 Blech.
0: Oh no. Oh my. Miss Thomas. Oh my god. Miss Thomas, could you please put your coat back on? Oh my stars. I can hardly look in your direction. If I had something in reach to throw over you, I would do it. Please find your coat. Please. If you refuse, I'm afraid I'll have to have Mr. Darling escort you out to the opposite side of the library where there's no ambient light or walkway, and you could be lost. Yes, please return to the cloakroom this minute and cover your attire. What? Don't I like what you're wearing? Go! Now! This instant! Oh, my goodness. Cersei, gracious sister, please help me. Good evening, my dear guests. And welcome to the Midnight Library and all of that jazz. I am your half-mad host, Miranda Merrick. If, If you'll just give me a few moments to, um, compose myself. I do apologize. I've just had a terrible shock from, inadvertently from, one of the other guests. We've narrowly escaped The carnage due to my lightning-fast reactions, but, well, I do so detest revealing too many personal, secret details about myself, unless I am forced to. So, I must tell you that, well, (laughs) as you know... I am a relatively strong and invincible woman, but um, I do have a minor list of vulnerabilities. Now, this particular one would not um, end me, of course, Um, but it does hinder me for a short time, right up to the point where it empowers. And compels me, which would never be a good thing for you. Perhaps we should have some signage made, an engraving even, so that no one forgets or is tempted to test the uh, effect of this infraction. I'll just repeat it, if, uh, if I may have mentioned it in the past, I don't recall. But please know and note that I am violently allergic to houndstooth check. No offense to Mr. Darling, his brothers, or the wolf pups. The name of the offensive pattern is purely coincidental, and the allergic reaction is certainly beyond my control. I'm sorry, what's that? How can a person be allergic to a pattern? I cannot possibly answer that, sir, because it is a wrongly asked question. The inclusion of the word person makes it nonsensical. Anyway, I am. And it causes me, in the first phase, to emit profuse columns of sooty black smoke from my eyes for hours now this in itself is not painful or even an inconvenience really Uh, (laughs) no matter how terrifying it looks (laughs) it is merely a um uh, an indication of the allergic reaction the um, flowing eye smoke continues for its allotted time and uh, can only be halted, or um, treated, by my personal physician, Dr. Bombay, uh, who must come right away. Or else, um, we move on to phase two. Rage. A most mortal type of flight into rage. I myself enjoy this phase of the uh, reaction. But the household suffers dreadfully for it. It frightens the goons and makes the wolf pups wretch. And as for the maids, well, getting the blood and bits of entrails off the ceiling can be (laughs) a challenge, (laughs) Um, if it's needed at all, depending upon in which room the um, rage takes place. And um, how many tragic victims there happen to be. So it would be wise if um, you could uh, refrain from wearing the houndstooth check pattern for the sake of the household. <laughs> Thank you, dear guests, for your kind consideration. Oh, goodness, I nearly forgot to tell you that the, uh, the hospitality tray is being wheeled in from the back of the room. You're all hungry, right? <laughs> uh, when our Natasha found out that tonight's reading was tombstone-related, she dashed down to the kitchen to once again whip up some little gravestone cookies and biscuits for you. Now, these, I believe, she has gone to the trouble of imprinting and emblazing with sacred or, um, little-known symbols which are only found here, on the tombstones of the Midnight Library. Um, <laughs> you may find images of books and teeth, brooms, um, goats, and snowflakes that look like sigils but are just snowflakes, just boring <laughs> snowflakes. Uh, let's talk about tombstones, shall we? Gravestones, headstones, monuments, memorials, and grave markers. Whichever term you like, there are even others I'm going to tell you about tonight. Yes, I know it's morbid, and spooky and off-putting to some who are probably in denial about such things, but it's more fun and interesting than that reason. Tonight we're going to explore tombstone history and then symbology, the images on tombstones and their unspoken meanings. These sometimes seemingly mundane images you can find by trundling through almost any cemetery with old graven markers in it all over the world. I may have mentioned before when we talked of unusual tombstones that a person who takes great pleasure in touring cemeteries and admiring and touching, sleeping upon, and photographing the tomb markers is called a taphophile. And deriving pleasure from indulging in this highly addictive and fulfilling hobby is referred to as taphophilia, or being a taphophiliac. My word, I hope there is no cure. It is a wonderful thing to be. It simply means one who is fond of cemeteries, funerals, burials, gravestones, and tombs. Now, taphophobia is the extreme fear of being buried while still alive. And it is a valid concern, which we would hardly ever let happen around here. (laughs) I suppose most of us who live here in the library and on the grounds would describe ourselves as being taphophiles. Although it's just a sort of a given part of the atmosphere and landscape, so we don't really talk about it or call it this per se, it's just part of this place. This would be like Italian people who live in Italy talking about having Italian food, that would be redundant. To them, it's just food. Uh, Anyway, many people who have a deep and abiding love for all things funerary, often know an absurd amount about gravestones. The history of them, what they're made of, and especially the meaning behind the often beautiful, often macabre, graven images upon them. These cryptic images only have meaning for those who know about their silent communications. In a little while, I'll make you privy to the little-known messages in the images. But first, we should talk of how all of this grave business got started. As you know, humans have been painting and carving messages on stone for thousands of years. It seems to have occurred to the earliest clever beings that scoring a stone was a fairly good way to keep whatever meaning you wanted to share permanently there. And although it is uncertain just precisely when the earliest burials were taking place, The best evidence we have is of Neanderthals seemingly intentionally burying their dead 130,000 years ago, with some findings hinting at burials as far back as unbelievably 600,000 years ago. They placed their dead down in the earth along with stone tools and bones. now One thing Neanderthals did not do, however, was to mark the graves. Later, early humans seemed to either understand that they did not want to forget where their dead were buried, and just as likely, they were sentimental as we are about our dead and they began to mark or signal the sites of their burials. Much of the earliest and best-preserved burials and carved markers are of course located in the dry and ancient lands of Egypt, but other cultures had their own methods of creating and branding the location of their dead. All across Europe and India can be found crude stone grave markers in the form of giant stones or megaliths, located on or beside the buried dead. There are also fascinating cyst burials or stone-lined pits, coffin-shaped containers made from stone that were popular in the Bronze and Iron Ages. The dead from long, long ago were sometimes buried in or near ritualistic stone circles, with some even having standing stone monuments or cairns or stacked stones erected in their honor. Many of these were inscribed with some of the earliest symbols of lines, crosses, spirals, divots and even some rudimentary animal shapes. Some graves were marked with a few or a single menhir, large tall stones that taper at the top. Controversy still swirls around these mysterious old monoliths, with historians saying they were not just for burial or boundary markers, but that they were also sacred locations where druids performed rituals and human sacrifices. Thank goodness that's over with, right? And briefly, there are the strange structures called dolmens found across Asia, Africa, and Europe, and concentrated in Ireland, Britain, and France. And oddly enough, Korea. The unusual dolmen style grave markers were built more than 4,500 years ago. They are impressive rock slab hut-like structures that house the dead beneath the floor of them. They typically have large upright or wall stones that were then topped with a massive flat capstone, and are generally large enough for you to walk into. Or crouch down and get inside, which we heartily recommend I mean hardly recommend. Many have collapsed, but many are still standing. Some of these rough standing tombs are so old and constructed of slabs of stone that are so heavy the largest capstone weighing 150 tons, that people today still cannot agree on how the mysterious gravestone architecture was built by primitive peoples. Interestingly, dolmens are also referred to as portal tombs. One thing that's no mystery to us, dear guest, tonight's sponsor... The League of Lady Gravediggers, and their sponsor, Mr. Jason. The ladies are happy to sling them bones. They bury bodies with glee and with mirth. But they draw the line at providing gravestones. That's a job that's more work than it's worth. So the gravedigging girls know a mason, who carve anything in stone or a plaque. He's known only as Mr. Jason, so no officials can ever keep track. Once the ladies have buried their stiff, Mr. Jason is the mason they trust. They get a tombstone for them as a gift, and he chisels how they bit the dust. Mr. Jason brings his tombstones at night, with a list of the ladies' request. His engravings are done by daylight. And his carvings are simply the best. Here's a bookcase that smashed someone flat. There's a witch someone treated to chummy. A magic wand sticking out of a back. And a wolf with a rather full tummy. If you are planning to do something daring, silly, or ill-advised... Here on the grounds of the Midnight Library, do one smart thing and plan ahead. Call the League of Lady Gravediggers so we don't have to at 976 Ditch Witches. The Midnight Library is not responsible for your foolish demise. All graves and monuments are chosen by the League of Lady Gravediggers with no guarantee of either being guaranteed. Remember, dear guests, that's 976 Ditch Witches. (laughs) Ah, now let's dig down into the nitty-gritty of what people were etching in the gravestones. Yes, let's. Something I myself did not know. Some of the first ornately carved memorial stones that conveyed much about the person buried are known as hero stones. They were discovered more than 2400 years ago in the Indian state of Tamil Nadu and are covered with intricate battle scenes featuring the hero buried nearby. Several cultures the world over honor a brave or heroic person by covering their tombstones with images of them fighting or defending themselves against the attack of others or wild animals. Hero stones are fairly straightforward in their messages. And later, when regional wars took place like the American Civil War, the dead were grouped together in mass or national cemeteries with just their names and birth and death dates chiseled into their headstones because everyone knew by their inclusion in this particular cemetery that they were brave soldiers and what they fought for. But the silent messages, through the subtle and sometimes not so subtle inclusion of other images, was begun with great passion by the Victorians, people living and dying during the reign of England's Queen Victoria, so the mid-1800s to 1901. You may have noticed we in the library are extremely fond of the Victorian era. In the preceding centuries, it wasn't uncommon to see big, gloomy crosses rounded over headstones and obelisk-style rectangular grave markers with Bible verses or simple phrases like Our Loved One, uh, or the single title of Mother or Father. And here lieth the body of with the name and dates pertaining to the deceased. But during Victorian times, there was a shift, a palpable change in the attitude of the living about dying. You probably recall that spiritualism, the belief that the dead could be contacted and were roaming their former houses and the cemeteries they were buried in, was very popular with the Victorians. And this profound belief of the living began to be reflected in how they buried their dead. After all, if the dead were going to be hanging around and could see or even take action or revenge if they didn't like how you had buried them. Well, let's just say that during the Victorian era, when a family ordered an image to be engraved on a tombstone. It was always on purpose and infused with messages about the dearly departed person, their heritage, their profession, or even their love life. They may have thought it was far better to be safe than to be ceaselessly terrorized night and day by furious phantoms whose only ambition is to frighten your spirit into leaving your mortified carcass on the kitchen. Never mind. There were certain givens, of course, in the symbology. If you find a grave with an anchor, this tells you quite obviously that the person was some manner of sailor, just as a rifle might be the sign of a soldier or a huntsman and ropes and steer horns denote ranchers. But what about a key? You might guess the person was a locksmith, but a key is a symbol of knowledge, so the person, the dead person, may have known something secret or rare. It can also represent heaven, I guess you may hardly take notice of a column on a gravestone standing to either side of the dead person's details. A grooved column is a noted Greek symbol of strength or dependable support. This tells you this person was one the others counted on or relied upon, perhaps the head of a household or a community leader of some sort. And if you look closely, you may find the column to be designed on purpose, with cracks or is broken in some way, which tells you that the person was taken too soon or suddenly. It may seem obvious that the graven image of a singular human hand pointing upward from the surface of the grave conveys the idea that the dead person was pious and had left and gone to heaven to receive their eternal reward. But what about a hand that points downward? Well, we all know what it means around here, but believe it or not, this was meant to either imply God reaching down to find the deceased or the deceased's own hand pointing down from the heavens above. Right, A pair of clasped hands can be very fascinating, down to the style of the sleeves. If one is masculine and one is feminine, this was the old message of marriage. If no gender is present, the hands can be a sign of a heavenly welcome or an earthly departure. In some fabulous depictions of clasped hands, one of the hands is skeletal. (laughs) A mortar and pestle upon a stone is not a sign that Baba Yaga ended someone. I mean, it could be, but it's generally not. The inclusion of an engraved mortar and pestle is a silent sign that the person was a doctor or pharmacist. The Victorians were also into horticulture and the language of flowers. This is why even today, we send bouquets of daisies and tulips to casual friends and deep red roses to lovers. They began including detailed engravings of certain vines and blooms all over their gravestones and tombs. Large lilies speak of the dead person's innocence or purity, while the tiny bells of Lily of the Valley hint at the humbleness and humility of a shy, quiet person. Blooming roses represent love, great beauty, and even motherhood, but unopened rosebuds tell you someone far too young is gone. A tuft of thistles isn't a sign of someone spiky, but could mean Scottish heritage, and is certainly a symbol of sorrow, grief, and pain. And a weeping willow is the same. Evergreen vines on a headstone signifies the faithfulness of the dead one's character, and a tree stump shows a life cut short. You may spot several animals as you tour any gracious old cemetery. Sadly, lambs almost always tell of the death of a child, but doves can represent messages of religious devotion or even to represent the devotion of married couples. If you see horses, the person is remembered as courageous, strong, or generous. Bees and beehives curiously mean the possibility that the person is a member of the I-O-O-F, the Independent Order of Oddfellows, which sounds like something from around here. Uh, It's a real and uh, current organization. Um, You may like to look them up. This and many more oh-so-nice symbols and cryptic Masonic symbols and signs are to be found. (laughs) There are also some not-so-nice graven images to discover. In many cases, it's not quite clear why some of these images were chosen to be carved into the everlasting gravestones of some people, but some have webs and bats, which are symbols of the underworld and the supernatural. Death and misfortune. Others have rather gruesome skulls, or batwing skulls, or bones everywhere. Batwing skulls are called death heads, which could signify the burial of a non-religious person. Or that the person's spiritual journey is not yet over. And snakes, for some reason, can represent health and everlasting life. Especially if the snake is an Ouroboros and eating its own tail. It may be found that some accused witches have these emblems upon their tombstones. <laughs> Lastly, there's a little noticed symbol of the triquetra, a three-lobed, often frilled or swirling symbol inside of a circle or triangle. Triquetras are said to represent the Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, who of the three seems pretty interesting but never gets hardly any press. Uh, There's a rumor of triquetras here on the grounds with witch hats, brooms, and the unholy ghost, but you'll never find proof of that, or uh, be allowed to talk about it if you do. Here in our growing cemetery, you may have noticed several fascinating images and symbols that, uh, oh, we're sure you've misinterpreted. Or didn't see what you thought you saw. Uh, many of the graves are so old, and the images and their meanings are um, hidden, are um, lost to time, or uh, mean something else by now. For instance, the pentagrams—these <laughs> could be simple Masonic or Freemason's icons—and the uh, fiery cauldrons are. Most certainly early restaurateurs. <laughs> the crows honestly do represent transformation. And uh, some of the earlier imagery on a few of the stones had to be um, sanded off by Mr. Jason. Uh, because I'm allergic to some of the other types of images. Hmm? What else am I allergic to? <sighs> Well, that is a prying question, but in the interest of the household, I will disclose a few. Let's see. Uh, anything overly sweet and unrealistic. Cartoonish angels, precious moments type figurines. Oh, my. Things can become very dire if I'm exposed to those. Uh, oh! And the presence of the phrase, live, love, laugh, on any surface causes me to first vibrate and quake violently just before I let out an eardrum-destroying shriek that causes whatever the phrase is on to be incinerated with a beautiful jolt of blue lightning. The entire entryway had to be replastered and redecorated when poor Miss Bentham visited and wore the phrase on a necklace. <laughs> so, um, maybe don't do that <laughs> and be um considerate uh, of the household. <laughs> now, I must unfortunately be considerate and ask you to Allow Mr. Darling to escort you out of the reading room, down a dim hallway or two, and out of the library. Um, do be careful of the open graves and tipping tombstones as you pass through the graveyard. It sometimes takes us a few weeks to book Mr. Jason after a stone has fallen on someone. <laughs> Good night, my dear guests. Good night. Has Mr. Jason arrived yet, Mr. Darling? I do have an assignment for him, after all.
1: Madam, congratulations! It's been ages since you uh,
0: corrected
1: a guest. Who did you correct? And what bitingly funny image is to go on their headstone?
0: Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, darling, but I haven't bumped off anyone. Just the opposite, I'm afraid. I've brought Mr. Bushman back to life so his headstone is out of date.
1: Oh, well that's nice, I guess.
0: Oh, I'm going to enslave his skeleton.
1: Eh, all right, I guess.
0: Hmm, Aunt Minnie's going to dress up in his skin at the zombie bash.
1: Now that's more like it.
0: The Midnight Library would like to thank everyone at Astonishing Legends. Our excellent sound design is by Chris at Sounds Like an Earful. The reading room remains open and ad-free during the readings because of the kind support of our spooky lovely patrons. Please consider becoming one for barely any blood loss at patreon.com slash midnightlibrary where you can contact me directly. Seek us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our bizarre merch can be found at redbubble.com people slash midnight library.